Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Because he has a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Monday, June 4th, welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary. I am a 16-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. My co-host, Lisa Bernhardt, is off for the night, as well as Kenny Kane off for the night. I am flying solo, folks, but we have some great guests here in the studio. It is not okay that 70,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show is all about fatigue and rehab, which is a myth. We all know we get through cancer. We race right back to the marathons. Anyway, in our survivor spotlight, Jane Bader Siegel, young adult survivor of Hodgkin's disease in the house. Angela Rica Ramos, a physical therapist at Sullivan Physical Therapy, and she is a certified lymphedema therapist. And the venerable returning champion, Sharon Franz, a registered nurse, oncology, uh, oncology nurse, uh, president and co-founder of the National Coalition of Oncology Nurse Navigators, otherwise known as NCON. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. Online at stupidcancer.org, we are not your father's cancer society, but we are bringing the cause. Of Cancer Under 40 to the National Spotlight, where it belongs. <clears throat> Pardon me, welcome aboard. Another fun and exciting romp of hands, a nice stupid cancer show, where remission is not a cure, and survivorship is all that matters. And a stupid cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, and on iTunes, as we broadcast live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. And as a final reminder, before we go live, the stupid cancer show has a live interactive chat room during each and every broadcast. We invite you to join in the fun, connect with our friends, and ask questions of our guests. And with that, it is now Monday, June 4th. And I may sound like I'm all alone in the studio, but I'm not really all alone in the studio. We have in studio our Survivor Spotlight, Jane Federsig. Hello, Jane. Hi, Matt. How are you? Talk into the mic. Okay, hi. I will make you feel miserable and okay. guilty and horrible. Please don't. No, no, you look gorgeous. You're fantastic. Oh, thank you. All right, so the and, and all right, so let's let's test the interns here. We have Brooke. Hello, Brooke. Hi, Matt. Brooke Lorenz is one of our newest uh, 
I, I would say slaves, but Kenny would tell me that you are doing much more diligent work and are being treated more appropriately than a slave. So I'd like to think so. And where are you from? I'm from Connecticut. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Connecticut's beautiful. Okay, I believe you. I, I think I drove through to get to Boston. <laughs> no, from Staten Island. Staten Island is where people drive through to get to Jersey. So, you exactly. Know. Okay. So. Yep. so what brings you to stupid cancer? Um, well, I am also a survivor. I was diagnosed after my high school graduation in 2010. and um, Wait, I, you graduated from high school in 2010? Yes, yes. I'm 19 years old. Oh, my God. <laughs> that gets one of these. Ooh. 19-year-old. You graduated, I have to you graduated high school in 2010. Yes. That's fantastically, yep. I'm an old guy. It was a wonderful year. I'm an old man. I'll be 38. I was just 38. That's not yeah. old. By comparison, I'm 19. I'm more than twice your actually I'm twice your age. That's why you have young interns. Yes, exactly. exactly. I need I need your energy. It's like that uh, that Charlie Theron character in the Snow White. She eats the young people to get their age. Oh. Yeah. So watch your back. Yeah, I'm a little nervous now. So what do you have? In uh, what kind of cancer? I had Hodgkin's lymphoma. But you look great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you get a lot. Thank you. It's behind me and everything. A year now. Good for you. So yeah. Fantastic. Did you lose your hair? I did. I'm just. I have extensions now. But I but know. you look great. Thanks. I know. I'm trying to mask it. Yeah. And the venerable Matt Beckett. Welcome back, Matt. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Matt. How are you, Matt Beckett? You're 25 now. 24. 24, yeah. and you have colon cancer at 22. Yep. Wow. And we're still here. Look at this. Four survivors, and three of you add up to my age. That's amazing. Stop. In the house. Anyway, um, I'm excited to to uh, kind of have the mic back to myself. I. I as I mentioned to the, to the folks here, um, I did produce the Super Cancer Show by myself from May of 2007 until January of 2010. So there are maybe a hundred broadcasts of me just enjoying listening to myself and no one listening to the show for the first couple of years. <laughs> but then we brought on some great guests. Lisa is um, Lisa Bernhardt is uh, off tonight, and uh, we wish her the best. We will have her back next week. Kenny Kane uh, is also off tonight, so um, I will. Um, I will threaten his employment for that. But I will buy him beer in, in exchange for that. So he will be very happy, my ginger lover. Anyway, so let's see. What's going on? I have no idea what's going on. Um, normally, this is the part of the show we just banter until we get to the spotlight, but the spotlight is here. So I'll just open it up to you guys. What did you do this week? And let's not bore our listeners because they like to get right to the meat and potatoes. What I did this week was, was actually really boring. I worked all week. Did you? All right, so wait, hang on. What does a 19-year-old do in 2012? Uh, um, a 19-year-old sleeps a lot. <laughs> okay. And got to catch up on my beauty. You're like like larval and... stage, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, slept and ate pretty much all week. You must have partied. Come on. No, not really. <laughs> wait, so how how was your Hodgkin's? How was your Hodgkin's diagnosed? Um, well, it took a little while. It took about four or five months to actually diagnose it, and I had to have two biopsies. And so after the second biopsy, they were able to tell it was Hodgkin. What were your symptoms? Um, I had a huge lump on the side, lumps all over my neck. And, and that's not normal? No. <laughs> they were huge. So they took two of them out, and the first one, uh, they couldn't really tell what it was, so they had to go back and take a bigger sample. And the second one, I guess I was open on the table, and the doctor knew right away that I had cancer. And what was that like at uh, at 18? It was really shocking because I was planning to play water polo for Arizona State, and I had kind of had my 
hopes and dreams set on that since I was a little girl. And um, about two weeks before I left for school, I found out I couldn't go. So I ended up staying home the entire year with, like, one friend that was still in high school while all my friends were away. And it was a very tough year, but I had my sister. She actually moved home uh, to be with me and my parents, and that's what happened. And my dog. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I mean, I may be an old guy, but I was diagnosed at 21. I had a very similar experience. I had brain cancer, but I was just getting, instead of just going to college, I was on my way to grad school. Okay. And I was diagnosed right before grad school started, so I had to give up grad school. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's because you, you plan on your life going a certain way, and in one second it just all changes. Right. And the future that you kind of just are hoping for is so unclear. So at 18 years old, are, I mean, again, I sound so old asking this question, but are kids today, you know, where are they at 18 years old? Did they, they respect what was going on with you? Were they supportive? Did they make fun of you? Did you have any awkward conversations or relationships? Hey. It was really weird for me because a couple of years before I got diagnosed, a girl in my uh, high school class, who I didn't really know that well, had lymphoma. And she had to take the year off of high school. And I remember being a sophomore in high school and looking through her Facebook and, like, just looking to see if she had any pictures of her without any hair and stuff just because I was so naive and I had no idea. And I remember seeing that first picture and just being shocked because it was the first time cancer had ever touched my life. And then when I got it, I kind of saw the other side. I saw people kind of being more fascinated with me and scared of me. Like a science project? Exactly. Because yeah. I was the first person to so many people to ever uh, be close to cancer for all these people. So it was interesting. People didn't know how to react. It was kind of like the huge elephant in the room. And I'm very open and honest and comfortable about talking about my cancer and what I was going through. Um, but on the other hand, I felt a lot of pressure every single day to just put on a smile and tell everyone I was okay when they asked, just to make them not feel or to make them feel comfortable instead right. of really sharing. You how accommodating I them instead exactly. of yes, exactly. Because yes. every day, how are you feeling? How are you doing? And inside, I'm like, I'm doing terribly. I <laughs> haven't like whatever. So I'm just like, I'm great. I'm great. Just to make them right feel better about them. Right. It's like the the burden of having to make other people feel comfortable around you when that should be the least of your concerns. Exactly. Exactly. Especially when you're in high school. Yeah. So, it's I had some great friends and a lot of them stood uh stepped up to the plate, but I can say majority of them kind of fell back and I really was able to tell which ones are my true friends and stuff like that. Did having Facebook in your life help or hurt your friendships? Um I would say it helped because I'm able to, I was able to keep in contact with so many of my friends that were away at school, but also it hurt because I would just spend hours and hours staring at pictures of these people who were living their amazing life at college, and they had no idea how terrible life could really be and how lucky they were to get that. Well, you're um, home, you're stuck up in a bed, exactly. getting treatments and losing your hair, and all your friends are living their lives, and it yeah. hurts. It's terrible. It's painful. I know, and they just didn't, I, I felt like they just didn't appreciate it like I would have appreciated it at right. that time. I mean, is it fair to expect them to do that, or how do you balance that? No, it's not fair for me to put those kind of pressures on them, because that's just not fair, but it is something I really struggled with for a long time, not uh, holding a grudge with them and being angry towards them, even though I was, just how lucky they were and how unlucky I was. But um But this is the young adult story. This is what our organization's all about that yeah. you know there may only quote unquote be 
72,000 of you every year, but there's like over a million of us in this country that have gone through this exact mm-hmm. same situation. Yeah. And whether it's having to watch your kids go, watch your friends go to college or grad school or get married or have kids or buy a house, mm-hmm. you're the one left out. And the only people that understand are people just like you. Yeah. And that was what was really hard is because I never really um, was able to connect with other um kids my age who were going through treatment, and that's all I really wanted, and I kept trying to... Where were you treated, by the way? Sloan Kettering. Okay. And, and they didn't introduce you to any other, really? No. Yeah, wow. I. they said that I fell through the crack. Get me Sloan Kettering on the line. I know, it's, right. it's too bad, and woulda, shoulda, coulda, but um, yeah, we just had no idea about the kind of... Because they have a fairly robust young adult clinic and support <laughs> groups that I know all yeah. the people that run them. So I hear. So I well, hear. I mean, honestly... I was at Sloan in 1996, yeah. and that was the first year they started a young adult support group, and they didn't tell me about it. Which I can forgive them because it was the dark ages that we don't really care about your well-being. We're just trying to let people think we do. Mm-hmm. But today they have these robust systems. Yeah. And uh, in, in Las Vegas, Matt saw me give the speech in Vegas. Were you in Vegas, no. Jane? Um, I talked about progress, and there are like 19 cancer centers in, the, in this country now that have specific young adult programs that did not five years ago. Mm-hmm. This is huge progress. The fact that you had to, yeah, that, that's really something that it, it, was it, bad, it, it bothers me. Yeah. Not because it's horrible that it happened, yeah. but that it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't, and I, I think that I was very small number of people that actually didn't have it accessible to them, right. but um, I know I've since looked online and seen all these different opportunities that were totally available for me, but I just didn't know, and I think that a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was an outpatient instead of inpatient. Right. Because so many of these are directed towards people who are inpatient, and if you don't really know about it and you're an outpatient, you kind of just hope that somebody mentions it to you. Right, exactly. So, so how did you find us? Um, what bet mom... did you lose <laughs> to get this internship? Um, I was at school, and my mom sent me an email with your link to the Stupid Cancer Summit, and we're saying, you really need to do this. And all day we were talking about it. And then I went to fill out the form, and it closed two days before. Oh, you know, so. we were such a victim of our own success for Vegas. Yeah. Oh, why? Well, so, oh, because we, we, we um, out of the 500 slots, uh-huh. we had 552 people. Oh. And we, 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 uh, we had to start the waiting list within, like, four days. Mm-hmm. Like, it's become, like, this incredibly coveted. So now that you're in the inner sanctum here, yeah. you'll know firsthand our planning for next year. Exactly. So you'll be exactly. registered number one uh, well, yeah, the day we launch. Definitely. <clears throat> With the brain chip in your head. So you, <laughs> like, it just it, it ticks right there. I can't wait. Well, that's awesome. That's oh, really awesome. Thank you. Well, welcome to the party. Thank you very much. Matt. Yeah, does she pass the test? Definitely. Okay, good. You're welcome to stay. You did great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Brooke. All right, well, let's get to our Survivor Spotlight here. I always like to play the uh, nice intro. Why not? I love it. All right, Jane Fetter Siegel is a social worker and a young adult survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma, a theme tonight, perhaps. Having been diagnosed only a few months after turning 30 and getting married, never a good time to get cancer, I suppose, Jane fought her way through six months of chemo and successfully defeated the ugly Hodge in January this year. She also raises a whole bunch of money. She's an epic fundraiser and an all-around amazing human being. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Jane Federsegel. No pressure. Wow. 
What an introduction. Yep. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. All right, so, um, okay, well, well, obviously you've been sitting here listening to the yeah. show. Uh, we're talking to Brooke. She was 18, diagnosed with, with, with cancer. Uh, I mentioned that, you know, not that it's ever a good time to get cancer, but when you're younger, your life is in a very different place. It's hard for other people to wrap themselves around what this could mean. And, you know, she was going into undergrad. I was going into grad school. You had just gotten married. So talk about your life before getting married. Uh, My life before getting married. Well. Where are you from? How far back do you want me to go? Well, in the (laughs) womb. All the way to the beginning. (laughs) I recall in the womb some flashing lights. I was born uh, in May. I'm a tourist. I was born in Moscow, Russia. Um, Moved to the United States when I was uh, almost 12 years old. And I uh, have been living in New York here with my family. I was uh, I went to high school in Rockland County, then went to undergrad up at SUNY Albany. When I came back from SUNY Albany, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Like most college students probably don't really know what they want to do with a bachelor's degree. Uh, I decided to go travel. So I traveled for a while and had a few different jobs just to kind of make money and uh, and, and, and have fun. And uh, eventually decided to, I always, I always wanted to work with people. I always wanted to work with children. So I, I started doing, you know, a few different things and working with uh, children and families. I worked um, for the New York City Child Protective Services for a while. Then I decided to go back to school and get my master's in social work. And uh, have been working in child welfare throughout the whole time. It's amazing. And, yeah, I've been working child welfare since then. And uh, I, it's great. I love being a social worker. I have to crack the child welfare joke, which is, you know, how many how many children have you absconded from parents who like leave them in like hot cars with closed windows at the mall? Well, I, I did when I worked for Child Protective Services. I unfortunately did have a few situations where I did have to remove the kids from the home, but none of the situations were as severe as you're describing. What about putting them in a washing machine? Oh my God, I couldn't. Did you see that I news? About that story? Yeah, that's horrible. Horrible. The girl was 18 months old. They it's, put her in a washing machine. It's so disturbing. What goes to be? I have two-year-olds. I don't oh have to God. have had kids to know that's a bad thing to do. They thought it was funny. thought it was a joke. It's just unbelievable. Terrible. I know. Well, it's, the kid's okay. Thank but God. you have not had a washing machine incident in your um, no. occupation history. No. Luckily, okay. I did not. And uh, <clears throat> and I did my best to work with the families. And, you know, I'm, I hope that the children I removed from the home eventually went back to the home when things got better. I don't there, know what happened, but I, I would mean, like to think that. I, I, yeah, I admit to having no understanding or knowledge or, or appreciation of, you know, what the world of child protection services is like. But how many, if you know the answer... You're, she's I don't already, really know the answer. <laughs> she, the number is probably like astonishing. I don't. Really I was going to say not how many cases, but how many children are returned to homes. Like how often is the problem remanded where the parents either learn their lesson or their whatever how the process works. You know. Yeah, the majority of them do go back home. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the child welfare agencies are really charged with making sure that that happens. They do their best to make sure the children go back home. That's where they belong. So in terms of, is it mostly endangering the welfare? Uh, a lot of neglect cases. Right. And um, some abuse cases. But I would say, for in my experience, it was it was mostly neglect cases where, unfortunately, parents had mental health problems or substance abuse problems or other things going on in their life that they weren't able to provide for their children appropriately. There was a story in the news last year. I'm paraphrasing. But the, the gist was that there was this young boy 
who whose parents did not want him to get chemotherapy for some kind of cancer he had because they thought that he would be cured naturally by, I don't know, bathing in mozzarella. I have no idea. Mozzarella cheese, something ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, and then child welfare came and said, no, you have to give this kid. And it turns out that the kid had the right, the parents had the right as the uh, to to let the kid not get the treatment. Wow. I guess so, as the, as the uh, legal I, again, I don't know the whole, just, that was the gist. Like, Child Protective Services was like, had to, like, the kid needs to get the, the cancer treatment. And the parents said, no, we're going to treat him in the mozzarella cheese. You know, and, and I, don't, I don't know the rest of the story, but I just thought I'd throw it out there because of, yeah. we don't want dead air. Well, that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that probably was a, a long court case. I'm assuming. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure everyone listening is already on the Google looking for the right, court case. But right, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So you're working for CPS. Yeah. You're here so in the city now. You're living up in Westchester. No, I live in Long Island. Live in Long Island. Yeah. Okay. I live in Long Island. I work in the city, and um, yeah, and it's and it's been great. I love living in Long and Island. And you met a man. You met a boy. Yeah, we met a long time ago. We met uh, ten years ago, right when okay. I was out of college, and we've been together. So we've been together for a long time. We got engaged in 2010, started planning our wedding. Wait, how'd you get engaged? Oh. Uh, we, like, we like to hear these stories. Oh, uh, it was great. It was, it was a shock to me, really. I was very surprised. And I'm a very hard person to surprise, so he did a good job. Um, it was just a regular Saturday afternoon. I didn't expect anything. We went to yoga in the morning, and then he was like, let's go have brunch with my sister. And I was like, all right, let's go. So we were driving to go have brunch with the sister, and then he's like, oh, she wants to go have lunch somewhere else. So we end up taking a different route to get to where we were going. And in Long Island, there's this um, area. It's like it's by the water. It's by Robert Moses State Park. I don't know if you guys know Long Island at all. It's 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 a pretty uh, a nice spot. And we're driving um, down, I guess it's Ocean Highway that runs along there, along all the beaches, kind of into, it runs through Jones Beach. Right. It's like a scenic route. And he pulled over, and he's like, oh, let's take a look over here. And I had to go to the bathroom. I'm like, no, I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> we need to get to the restaurant. I'm cold. And it was, it was this was uh, April, so uh, no, it was end of March. I should know that. Uh, so he gets me out of the car. He's like, "Oh, I think there's bathrooms over there." I was like, "Okay, fine, I'll get out of the car for that." And we walk over, and it's like really picturesque, and it's beautiful, and the sun is shining. And he's like, "Oh, it's pretty here." And I'm actually saying, you know, in my head, I'm I'm looking around. I'm thinking, "Yeah, this is actually it looks like a pretty little beach." I'm like, right. "What if we got married here? This would be a nice oh. place to get married." Because I always just anytime I saw a pretty place, I was like, "Oh, we should get married here." <laughs> We were talking about it for a while, but all of a sudden he was like down on one knee and he was proposing. And so the only reason crazy. you're married is because you had to pee. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I just want to clear that up. The timing really worked Good. out. Very nice. Yeah. And then as a as a consolation prize for getting married or getting engaged, you got sick. I actually did not get sick. My story is kind of different. Um, I I started planning my wedding. Everything was fine. I was like super busy. I was working, planning my wedding, and trying to, you know, maintain somewhat of a social life. And um, just being a normal young adult. Yeah, yeah. I um, in in May, no, it was March of 2011. Um, we went to Playa del Carmen, Mexico, to celebrate my bachelorette party. It was like a weekend of partying and fun, and awesome. it was awesome. Yeah. And we came back. Um, April rolled around, more parties, more more bachelorette parties. And in fact, a few of my friends were getting married around the same time as me. So there was a lot of partying going on. I felt fine. And then all of a sudden, I like got a little sick. I had a cold, and I started coughing. 
And this happened right before my 30th birthday, and I'm thinking, usually I might just wait for the cold to go away. Right. But I was like, I got a party. My 30th birthday party's on Saturday, so I need to go to the doctor to get some antibiotics to feel better. Right. I went to the doctor. I was like, look, I need to party this weekend. Can you give me antibiotics? <laughs> and he was I like, got, uh, <laughs> I got alcohol that needs to be in me. Yeah. Yeah, so I was like, um, you know, what's going on here? He's like, well, let's do, he's like, it's probably just bronchitis or something right. like that. He said, let's do an x-ray just in case, just to make sure it's not pneumonia or something like that. So I went to get an x-ray, and something showed up in the x-ray, and I found out the next day, and then he was sent me for a CT scan, and then they said there was a mass on my lymph nodes in my chest. They saw it on the CT scan, but they didn't know what it was. And um, and that news actually came the day before my birthday, and I and, and the CT scan said indicative of lymphoma, and I, I'll always remember those three words, indicative of lymphoma, and I was like shocked. That's my T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I should make a T-shirt with those 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 three words. They kind of um, that was like my first scare. Did you ever did you know what that word meant when you saw it? Oh, I started have, have you ever heard? Okay, started the, googling the, Google. the hell yeah. out of it. I was like, I was at work when I got this. The CT scan results. Right. Were, I did not do any more work for the rest of the day. I was I'm sure. Google. Yeah, yeah. Looking up lymphoma, and of course, there's like a thousand different types of lymphoma. I'm mm-hmm. like, I have no idea what this could mean for me. But you know, the next day we partied. I had a good birthday party, and um, time a lot of time went by. Finally, I, um, you know, I was getting married in June. This was all happening in May. They wanted to do a biopsy, but I didn't want any scars, so we did the first biopsy, which is um, non-invasive. Uh, that wasn't good enough. They didn't get enough tissue. I didn't get a diagnosis. So I, we waited until after I get married to do the second biopsy, which confirmed that it was Hodgkin's. So you specifically selected to not have the scar-producing surgery so you can get married and have great photos that didn't need Photoshopping. Yes. That's I didn't want phenomenal. a scar in the middle of my neck No, that's fa- well, I mean, wedding day. <laughs> no, I agree. And Photoshop be damned. Yeah. You specifically made that conscious choice that this is how you want to live your life, mm-hmm. and that's extraordinary. And the doctors were very supportive. They were like, yeah, you know, you're getting married. That makes sense. Okay, we'll wait. But the fact that they let you wait, yeah, was, like, A, was it a risk? Was it a calculated risk? Could it have gotten worse? Like, were those things that went through your head? Uh, yeah, they did go through my head, and I did ask the doctors that, but they um, they all pretty much agreed that if whatever point it's at right now, it's not going to get much worse in a matter of a month. Right. And, um, you know, and they, and they I didn't have any symptoms at right. all of, of any kind of cancer. So they thought they still actually, some of the doctors were still like, it's probably not even lymphoma. So, <laughs> yeah, they were like, oh, it's probably nothing, you know, and that's what I kept thinking in my Take head, too. Take a children's aspirin, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, it's probably nothing. But, you know, it was something. So then you got married, then you had the surgery, or did you take a honeymoon? How that worked? We, we, went to, uh, we went to Montauk for three days after our wedding. I was like, you know, we need to do that to relax and have right. some fun. So we did do that. We came back, and then a, a day later I went under the knife and had my biopsy. Wow. Yeah. And you lost your hair? I eventually lost my hair, yeah, started chemo, lost my hair. Just and like they said, after the second treatment, it all just started falling out. Right, right, right. But you look great. Thanks. <laughs> God, I get so many compliments these days. And where were you treated? At Sloan. Okay, so it's a Sloan Kettering. Were you interested, let's go back to uh, the situation, were you at all introduced to any other young adults while you were there? No, I wasn't. But I was told about your organization. All right, well, that, that's kind of a half. What Does do that you make say? you feel better? What do you say? Is it a half? 
That's half. That counts. All right, Brooks has half. Okay, good. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Uh, Matt, where were, you, where were you treated, Matt? Hackensack and Dean and Farber. Okay, but they did tell you about us, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and they do have a young adult program. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to Hackensack. And when I was at Sloan, I asked them specifically, you know, I saw that they had a lot of support groups. I'm like, do you have one that's specifically for young adults? They were like, no. And this was last year? This is, yeah, last year. Oh, like, my God. This is in September. One hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing at that hospital. Yeah. Well, we need the hospital. They, 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 people die less. But right. at the same time, <laughs> we want them to, to have that peer support. Yeah. No, I, I didn't get that. But, uh, but I did find, I found your website. Well, that's good. I found a lot of forums. And, good. you know, I, I got a lot of support that way, which is great. And you just celebrated one year. No, I just finished chemo in January. Well, oh, your party was for the... the My party was for me uh, being in remission. Oh, well, it was your remission party. Oh, that gets one of these times. Okay. So we'll be back here one year from now. Oh, yeah, there'll be another okay. party. The one-year party... Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll have a party when I have my four-month checkup. How about that? That's fantastic. I'll have a party every four months. Kenny drinks like like his uh, like a wooden leg. I so believe any it. excuse, he'll just just bring bring it here. And I love to plan and host parties and, no, and you're go gonna, to parties. Gonna, you're gonna <laughs> be careful what you offer. Okay. <laughs> we're gonna take advantage of that. All right. That's fantastic. All right. Well, let's get to the news here. You guys are gonna stick in city. I'll read the news. We'll bring out our first guest, and you guys can chime in anytime you want. Thanks so much. Jane Fader-Siegel. All righty, and here we go. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All right, head on over. There we go. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.com, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Stay in the loop, because we could be doing something out there in your neck of the woods, and we don't want you missing out on it. We have this Saturday a Stupid Cancer Boot Camp in San Diego, and this Thursday here in New York is the 6th Annual Stupid Cancer Ungala. Go to stupidcancerungala.org. And, all right, presenting the Cancer Card, brought to you by Stupid Cancer. Yes, it's an actual plastic credit card and accompanying keychain fob because it's time to cash in all those pity chips and milk your diagnosis for all it's worth. Why? Because why not? Player Cancer Card. You'll be glad you did. $14.99 for a 10-pack order today at playthecard.org. The uh, Stupid Cancer Forums have over 2,500 members now. This is your premier online support community for survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.com. And that is a very brief Stupid Cancer News. So let's, uh, let's hit up one of our guests now. Alrighty, here we go. Angela Wicker-Ramos is a physical therapist and certified lymphedema therapist with a specialty in oncology and pelvic floor rehabilitation. She developed the oncology and lymphedema programs at Lovelace Women's Hospital in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Sullivan Physical Therapy in Austin, Texas. Her program specializes in improving the quality of life for both fighters and veterans. I like that. Fighters and veterans of Stupid Cancer. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Angela Wicker-Ramos. Angela. Hi, Matt. Hello. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. It's a little hard to hear you. Are you on a Bluetooth, perhaps? Um, no, but I can speak louder. There we go. Fantastic. Right. So uh, you you reached out to me just a couple of weeks ago. 
Yes. Yes, we, I just found out about you guys and thought it would be an awesome way to let everyone know about oncology rehabilitation and how it can right. help. And we, we actually haven't really done a show on this in quite some time. This is our fifth year in broadcasting, and uh, I can't remember the last time we did a show on that, but obviously it's a huge component of survival and survivorship, right? It is, and, you know, speaking with Brooke and Jane, it seems like there's not enough word out there about knowing um, what can help and the resources out there. So, Well, what have you seen in terms of, like, adoption or best practices? Is this a new idea that's come out like, wow, we need to care about people that's beyond the medicine? Yes, and I think it's it's slow in coming, and it's it's not quite a um, general practice yet. But, I mean, looking beyond just I've survived, now I want a good quality of life, you know, and how can we look into that? And I find that a lot of my patients have to actually actively ask for that um, with their physicians. So it's I think we still have some progress. So so what's your history? How did you get into this line of work? Well, you know, I was interested in physical therapy because I used to be a dancer, and so I got into general orthopedic, and I felt like something was missing. And then my mother um, developed cancer, had an amazing physical therapist here in Austin, and that just inspired me to, you know, get this specialty and start working with people. And and so did it start out in oncology, or did you find yourself moving into oncology? No, I, I started off treating knees and shoulders and all of that, and, then got my specialty in oncology, and that kind of led me to pelvic floor because they, they went hand in hand. So, Well, we're going to bring out Sharon Franz from the National Coalition of Oncology Nurse Navigators in just a second, uh, but I wanted you to just comment on what is your relationship uh, to uh, oncology nurses and oncology social workers? Oh, very closely knit. You know, I think that's where we get the majority of our referrals, and, you know, um, patients tend to spend more time with the nurses than the doctors a lot of times. So, you know, I calling them, talking to them, um, they're a very important component. All right, well, with that, let's bring out uh, Sharon Franz. Sharon Franz is the president and co-founder of the National Coalition of Oncology Nurse Navigators, a nonprofit organization. She is a nurse with over 20 years of experience caring for persons with cancer and AIDS. She's an advocate for all individuals facing cancer, advocating and empowering individuals through the Cancer Continuum, returning champion, Sharon Franz. Hello, Sharon. Thank you, Matt. Welcome back to the show, Sharon. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, calling in from ASCO here in Chicago. That's right. So speaking of the world of standards of care and best practices, um, you know, Angela reached out to us, and uh, you heard on the the air before that we really haven't done a show about physical therapy or rehabilitation, um, which I imagine is is, uh, something that is, inherently embedded in the consciousness of nurses, correct? Yeah, it is. Um, Interesting, when I was asked to be on the show, I went back and did a little bit of research just to make sure I was on top of the new things. And, you know, um, really over the last 20 years with rehabilitation, there's been this increased specialization in the different areas of therapy. And I think a lot of it is that the physicians and nurses don't even realize what these therapists can do for the patients that are in their cancer recovery. So I think this is a great topic, and um, and it's definitely can be beneficial into the quality of life and survivorship of our patients at any well, age. Right, and then Angela, you know, this, this again, this is like we like to say remission is not a cure. That there's more to the medicine to survive. You know, I, I recall I was a concert pianist when I was diagnosed, and I lost the ability to perform. Uh, my my fine motor coordination evaporated from my left hand. And I wasn't offered any physical therapy whatsoever 
They didn't recognize me as a as an individual who happened to be a piano player. Uh, I, I let alone the other fatigue that I that I felt. Do you do you find that patients are speaking up more for themselves these days? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, getting back into yoga, getting back into swimming. I mean, it's, there are so many survivors now that there's just they want to get back to what they love to do. They want to move on. So um, reaching out and making sure that they can find a way to make that happen. And and, and Sharon, can you comment on what are the limitations that oncology nurse navigators have in ensuring that their patients are actually given, uh, you know, the, the resources that you feel they need but they might not be getting? Well, there's a couple of things. One is um, uh, limitations of getting the physicians to order the appropriate um, treatment modalities for the patients. Just getting a script so the patient can get a referral becomes an issue many times for um, particularly cancer patients because the, the, the oncologist may be hesitant to order it. They're not back quite back at their primary care yet. Who's going to be the order? Who's going to be signing off on orders becomes an issue, as well as financial. Do, do they have coverage? If they don't have coverage, how are we going to get these um, valuable services to our patients? And as nurses it be, and social workers, it becomes this huge mountain that sometimes we have to overcome or remove this obstacle to get these patients the treatment that they need. So, Angela, when that happens in your situation, that must be incredibly frustrating because here you see patients who have these needs and they just can't get the services. Right. And, uh, you know, I've often I've tried to go to doctor's offices and educate them as much as possible, but I found the most effective way is to actually go to support groups and cancer resource centers and um, let them know about the services because then, I mean, you put the power in the patient's hands. And then, you know, I haven't met a physician or, you know, a nurse. If the patient comes up to them and says, I've found this place, you know, they're more than happy to refer over. It's just, you know, developing the knowledge that this exists and it can be helpful. That's the challenge, so. Well, I think that's the other thing is trying to, and the patients, you know, many times don't even know that there's these services. So right. It, and it's really our jobs as healthcare providers to also recognize that there's something that we're not doing for our patient. And nurses, particularly, we usually pick up on these things. But you know, patients sometimes don't even know that they can have this this therapy, and it's um it's a challenge. Um, the one thing I wanted to make sure that I got across when I was on your show tonight is that every hospital that has their COC through the Commission on Cancer and American College of Surgeons should have a real rehabilitative program for their cancer and oncology patients. That's a requirement to have your accreditation as a cancer center. And patients don't know that many times, um, nor do other individuals. So, so a question for, for both of you, I guess, let's start with Angela, is uh, is there a, uh, in terms of the, 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 the type of therapy ordered or the, the structure or the protocols ordered over, over a period of time, they're individually crafted, right? But are they taken out of out of existing protocols based on age or disease, or or you know, can you talk about that process? Well, most most of the time, scripts are um, based on impairment. You know, if a patient's suffering from incontinence after prostate cancer or um, shoulder pain after um, breast cancer, um, so our scripts are usually sent to us based on the impairment the patient's having, not based on the um, the cancer treatment that they've received. Sharon? Yeah, I mean, that's true. And we, You know, when you're um, getting um, someone sent over, and it comes really valuable when you're looking at um, how you're going to get coverage for the patient, the clinical documentation. You know, you want to make sure that you're referring for a specific problem that you've identified or the patient has, uh, has identified so that you can get the appropriate treatment and also get it covered. So, yes, that's, that's, 
that's the uh, case. So are there are there limits to the types of therapies that that patients can get, like like Reiki acupuncture? You know, can you go through the gamut of these types of services? Um, yes, I often let patients know about um, oncology certified massage therapists, acupuncturists, nutritionists, but I always emphasize that they have to have had special training and specifically working with oncology patients. But it can be very effective. Um, to, you know, do those other types of um, holistic treatments as well. Yeah, and many times, too, you know, patients, if they're having trouble finding those, they can they can go to someone like Angela that knows of these, that, that she actually or other people that are qualified can say that these are people that we know that your oncologist or your providers actually approve. You know, so you can use that as a way to find, um, you know, qualified people. But patients who, are, you know, like especially young people who've had cancer, need to let them know I've had, you know, I have can- had cancer, I've had cancer treatment, you know, before they start any type of treatment. So, Angela, in your bio, it says that you are uh, you specialize in oncology and pelvic floor rehabilitation. Can you explain to us what that is? Yes. Um, your pelvic floor is basically a muscle group that extends from your pubic bone back to your tailbone, um, and it's involved in assisting with continence, assisting with pelvic function, and also a core support to support all of your abdominal contents. It's like a hammock. And how that often affects um, people who have undergone oncology treatment is those muscles can be weakened because of hormonal changes, which can lead to incontinence, and then obviously prostate um, surgery can lead to incontinence, and then also pelvic pain can occur from any type of oncology treatment, um, including um, bladder cancer and even breast cancer with the hormonal changes with treatment and hormone therapy can um, cause spasm and tension um, in the vaginal or the pelvic floor area. And that can be treated as a pelvic floor therapist with um, manual work like trigger point to help release that tension in the tissues and also strengthening if necessary to help um, develop more continence. Got it. Can you can you go through over with us the um, other differences in therapies or prescribed protocols based on you know the the side effects of chemotherapy versus the side effects of like a surgical procedure? Yes, I, when it comes to physical therapy with with chemotherapy, sometimes what people need is just a single consultation to help assist them with um, fatigue management or developing a realistic gentle exercise program um, that's catered to them. Um, however, if they're dealing with neuropathy or something, it could possibly take um, further treatment two times a week, one time a week, you know, for a month or a couple of months. Um, but post-surgical, one thing I really emphasize with people is, you know, you get a total knee replacement and the automatic protocol is to refer somebody um, to rehab. But that's not the case yet with um, mastectomies, which is just as invasive and affects range of motion and strength just as much. So with... Um, People after uh, those type of surgeries usually see them two times a week up until they reach the level that they want to be back at, you know, whether it's playing tennis or getting back to yoga or whatever it may be. Let me ask the three young survivors here in the audience. Uh, either all, uh, I can't really speak tonight. I am exhausted. Anyway, I apologize. Matt, Brooke, and Jane, any of the three of you had uh, any sort of therapy, physical therapy afterwards? Matt, yes? A you want, little bit. you want to talk, us, talk to us about that? Um, By the way, uh, Sharon and, and uh, Angela, Matt uh, had colon cancer at 22. He's 25 now. Okay. I had some peripheral neuropathy, 
and I also herniated two uh, discs in, in my neck. So I had physical therapy in New Jersey. Was that, that did you ask for it or did they offer it to you? Um, a little bit of both. I I needed it for the neuropathy and Hackensack said, you know, there's a great therapist um, not too far from the hospital, and they referred me. Brooke, anything? Nope, none for me. Did you feel you needed any and didn't get it? Uh, no. I think the first day I was allowed back in a pool, I went swimming and just tried to keep myself in shape and all that and got my body back to where it was just through that. Well, there you go. Yep. Jane, anything? No. Did you feel you needed anything? Not really. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. All right, you no longer need it, Angela. Uh-huh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is then, like, do you see a sort of a differentiation then between the needs of, you know, pediatric or young adults versus the typical older adults who may need therapy in general because they're just elderly or, or you know, at a different stage of life? Yes, and, you know, and it also depends on the, you know, the type of treatment that you've undergone. I mean, um, I do see at this point, at least half of young adults as opposed to um, more elderly individuals, but their their needs and, and where they want to get to um, in life and, and their physical activity is significantly different. Um, and I think that a lot of physicians are um, quicker to refer young adults than they are um, the older population. But, again, it just depends on, you know, what your impairments are and where, where you want to end up. So. So, Sharon, uh, how is ASCO treating you? By the way, for the listeners out there, ASCO is the American uh, Society of Clinical Oncology. They're having their, their 30-something annual conference with 30,000 doctors in Chicago. Oh, it's been great. I mean, it's been a great opportunity to, of course, reconnect with a lot of the advocacy organizations out here. And also, you know, get to talk to some of the clinical oncologists and surgical oncologists that are practicing and hearing their um, viewpoints, you know, my focus, of course, being on navigation, but also, you know, keeping in touch. But it's been great. The weather's great. Got to connect with all, you know, some of the, the, the champions of your program. So it's been really, Usual really suspects. Usual suspects, yes, but it's been great. And, you know, I think that, you know, having Angela on here and people talking about rehab and fatigue, you know, is something, you know, that um, – you know, something that, you know, even with ASCO, you know, would be, you know, I don't, I have, I didn't see any tracks. I looked through to see if they had anything on that, and I didn't really see anything um, that was going to be offered during this. But I think it's something that, you know, that physicians as well need to be aware of, is, is something that they need to make sure that they're always in tune with for their patients, especially the young adult. Well, that brings up a, a, almost a secondary conversation about the role of the oncologist versus the role of the nurse, the social worker, the therapist, and how that relationship interplays to benefit the patient at the end of the day. And, you know, do you, I guess, Sharon, in your experience as, a, as, a, as an oncology nurse, have you just seen all different types of personalities of doctors who may inherently be aware of these secondary non-clinical, you know, needs? Uh, yeah, versus... like Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, really, it is, huh? <laughs> No, it is. I mean, you know, you, and you have some that are very quick to want to offer, you know. And I think it's really, you know, it sounds like Angela, some of the places that she's been, they have really strong programs. And, I, you know, and, that, and you know, that's the case in many areas, but it isn't, you know, for some. And I think, you know, they, I mean, 
You know, I think there are patients, obviously, you know, even from your experience, Matthew, that aren't being offered, you know, the rehabilitative services that they need and lose some of their mobility and um, just maintaining the, you know, the activity level that that they should be able to have at, at the point after they have cancer treatment. So I think that there does need to be this continuing education for physicians to make sure that they that they're on top of this. So Angela, there's a lot of different personalities. I agree. Angela, what kind of training does one have to have to, to get the, the certifications that you have? Well, um, for oncology certification, there's uh, multiple classes um, that are offered that are after you get your physical therapy degree. You can either do them through the APTA or other organizations. And then as a lymphedema therapist, you have to um, take a course that's 135 hours um, coursework for to become a certified lymphedema therapist. And then there's a LANA certification which is from the Lymphology Association of North America. Um, that's kind of the gold standard in which you have to be treating lymphedema for a year and then take an exam to become LAMP certified. And, and for our listeners, what is lymphedema? Lymphedema, um, your lymphatic system, it has got two purposes. The first purpose is it's part of your immune system, so each little lymph node helps filter out any toxins. And then also what your lymphatic system does is on a daily basis you have fluid coming out of your circulatory system into your tissue spaces to feed your cells, and then that fluid um, is reabsorbed into your circulatory system. And so your lymphatic system actually picks up that excessive fluid and helps dump it back into your circulatory system. So what happens with a lot of cancer treatments is either through radiation or through an actual surgical intervention where lymph nodes are removed, your lymphatic system is now damaged. For a lot of people, it's kind of working a little slower and a little less effectively, but it's still able to pick up that excess fluid. But for others, it's not, and then you end up seeing um, swelling or lymphedema. And what is the typical type of treatment for, for lymphedema? Well, the gold standard of lymphedema is called complete decongestive therapy, and it incorporates multiple components. The first component is just patient education, making sure that skin care um, is a focus. Also, there's compression, whether it's through compression bandaging or compression garments to help kind of push the fluid um, out of the area, and then also there's manual lymphatic drainage, which is a massage technique to help kind of reroute the fluid over to healthy lymph nodes that are not being taxed quite as much, and then decongestive exercises to help pump the fluid out of the area. Right. I mean, I, I we work in the young adult cancer world, so we see a lot of young women with breast cancer who wear the lymphedema sleeves constantly, um, and they're constantly worrying about uh, treating it and, and switching it out, and there's all these new products coming out. Uh, I'm sure you're on top of that industry, though. Right, right. And, you know, lymphedema, although it's most well-known in the arms after breast cancer, um, head and neck can cause uh, face lymphedema, genital lymphedema after prostate cancer, um, after bladder cancer, lower extremity lymphedema. So um, there's lymphedema presents itself in a lot, a lot of other ways. It's just not quite as um, well-known. Wow, okay. But the okay. treatment is very similar. Sharon, yeah. do you do you deal with that a lot? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. You know, to, I mean, and this is one of the things. You know, if if you're not, you you don't see it as much um, in the other areas. And one of the reasons, you, you know, breast cancer and breast cancer surgery is usually the most um, is the surgery that's done most um, at the hospital. So you're not seeing as many cases of the lymphedema of other areas, but. 
in fact, when you see that when patients are having lymphedema of other areas of the body, you know, it is something that really needs to, you know, someone needs to, you know, make a referral, get them to the specialty. And patients many times aren't even aware what it is because I think on our end as healthcare providers, sometimes we don't do a good job of educating our patients to look for what these, um, what lymphedema could be in these areas. So um, patients that, you know, that have swelling or have, you know, an increase in size of a limb or, or of, you know, of a different, you know, of a part where they've had surgery or away from a surgery should definitely make sure that they say something to their nurse or their, their, their doctor when they see them. Um, there are actually nurses that specialize in rehabilitation as well that, um, but they're not as many and, and there are few out there that are working in the hospitals, but it's a, it definitely happens. Well, yeah, in lymphedema, it is it is progressive, meaning that the yeah. sooner you catch it, the um, the less likely it's going to progress in stage, and the better your recovery. And so, a lot of people don't realize that they have lymphedema until they actively see swelling. However, right. there are some symptoms that can kind of be a precursor that that shouldn't be ignored, but patients don't often know what those are, like a heavy, achy feeling, tingling. Um, or just feeling like your your arm sleeves aren't fitting quite as well as they used to or your grip has changed. You know, and there are things that if in the back of their head they kind of knew what lymphedema was, then they'd be quicker to come to you guys and they'd be quicker to get treatment and have a better outcome. It's all about education. Exactly. Have you found that the uh, the young adults are more interested or disinterested in in the sort of where they just want to get on with their lives and, and that's it? Well, I I think that it kind of goes both ways. I think there are people who have um, very little impairments afterwards and can get back to their lives quicker. And then there are others that, you know, are frustrated and they're looking for any resource out there to get back to it. So, I mean, it's it's there if they need it, and I think young adults are more actively um, searching for a way to get back to where they want to be. So, Right. Yeah, I agree with that. So, uh, so what's... What's the latest in in, um, in uh, lymphedema treatments then? Like, is there like a magic bullet coming out soon that will make it better, or is it really just as long? I mean, I see women wearing these sleeves for for months and years sometimes. Yeah, unfortunately, they have some surgical interventions, like, um, uh, but they're they're fairly new and they're not really well um, well practiced yet. So the gold standard of the complete decongestive therapy is unfortunately all we got at the moment, but they are looking into the lymph node um, transplants, and um, it's new and up and coming, so I'm hoping that it's going to end up working. And then in Europe, they have um, some medications, but they haven't been approved here in the U.S. So So I guess the last thing I want to tackle before we wrap in a couple of minutes is insurance. Obviously, you know, does insurance in general cover these services, or if it doesn't, is it included as part of a hospital visitation or inpatient, outpatient, and if a young adult is underinsured and their insurance won't cover it with the hospital, you know, how does that process work? Talk us through that. Let's start with uh, with Sharon. Well, I mean, it's really, I mean, it varies from plan to plan, unfortunately, with insurance, um, but most plans um, do have um, rehabilitative um, uh, policies that cover especially physical and occupational therapy after you've had a procedure and it is generally done all outpatient 
we found um, if a patient, you know, if a patient is in-house and they do need um, to have therapy, they they can get it. But typically, most of the um, therapy they receive is going to be outpatient, and it's, it becomes a challenge when you have patients that are underinsured or don't have these services or no insurance to find. But I have to tell you that there are therapy centers out there and rehabilitative centers that do offer some charity and free um, treatment to uh, two and four patients. Well, that's great. Angela, what about on your end? Well, you know, I think that insurance is far um, happier to assist if we are dealing with more of an orthopedic issue like a postural issue or range of motion of the arm, um, a little less willing to um, provide for lymphedema treatment. They're very restrictive on their coverage of that, and they do not cover compression garments or compression bandaging at this point. So there is um, a lymphedema act or lymphedema treatment act that we're trying to pass through Congress um, that's going to help, you know, increase the uh, insurance's uh, role in paying for these type of treatments. But I haven't had issues with just general oncology rehab because those, you know, those diagnoses are the same as other orthopedic um, diagnoses, so they seem to be far more open to that. Well, that's good then. I mean, the gist of all this is really about that, you know, there's more to surviving cancer than just the medicine and that we we're now like versus i was treated like 17 years ago you know they were these weren't even in the mind's eye they just wanted to cure you in the best way they knew how and get rid of you and today we really focus on the humanity of the experience of going through a life-altering uh, you know experience there and you guys are really at the core of of, of helping us to navigate the stuff we have no idea about so let's end with this last question. What do you do when you get a know-it-all patient that thinks they know what they're going to do and whatever they want to do would probably kill them? Jeez, gosh, Matthew. I like um, to end on a high. <laughs> well, you know, that's you I mean, I mean, it, 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 different approaches, but you know, I, I you know, when as healthcare professionals, one of the things we look at evidence-based. So, you know, I usually try to take it as a, you know, let's tell me, tell, let's talk this through. And you know, um, you know, sometimes patients do have really good ideas and insight into what they feel is going to be good for them. And sometimes you just have to really talk them through and, and show them the facts. And um, you know, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. That's you know, just happens to be the case. But. Many times they do come around. Sometimes it's just a time issue. Give them some time and they'll come back and you you work through it. Well, I think it's it's our responsibility to educate, and that's all we can do. So you give them the most information that you have, and and ultimately it's it's their life. So you right. you educate and let them decide what they want. I mean, the reason I ask is because, you know, I, we, we mentioned that at the top of the show there was a story last year of a young boy whose parents refused him getting chemotherapy. I know this is not like it's not rehab related, but the idea is, you know, the parents thought they knew better than the doctors and the state let the kid not have to have the chemotherapy for his cancer. So I would imagine with the internets and all that stuff out there, people come in thinking they want to take a watermelon bath versus going for Reiki or whatever and you're having to manage these relationships that the quote unquote empowered patients who didn't exist five or ten years ago. 
those are challenging patients, and yes, those are the ones that end up in the navigator's office usually, those patients. <laughs> like going to the principal, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it does happen, though. I mean, you're right. I mean, we, I mean I have, I've had patients print off pages and pages and bring in, or patients call in, and, you know, you know, with um, these things they found on late-night TV or read in, you know, wherever, and you just have to, you know, you know, it does happen. It does. Well, all right. Well, I mean, we're uh, we're almost out of time, but I, I can't thank you guys enough for coming on the show because we again we really have not had this conversation. It's such an imperative angle of survivorship, which is again personally, I wish I had this. I wish they offered me anything. I had no nutritional therapy, I had no physical therapy. I could have probably benefited from, from pretty much anything at that point because I was a shell of a person with the amount of uh, radiation they gave me. But I commend you guys for doing this great work on behalf of the. Uh, the cancer world. Thank you. And really quickly, yeah, I wanted you. to mention that in order, um, if someone wants to actually look up an oncology certified physical therapist, they can go to www.apta.org and is then find a, a therapist. It was that A as in Apple, P as in Paul, T as in telephone, and then A.org. APTA.org. We'll put that yes. in the chat room there, and everyone will get the link. So thank you guys so much, Sharon. Enjoy ASCO. Give a big hug to all my friends out there, and uh, we'll see you soon. All right, great. All right, thanks. Angela Wicker-Ramos and Sharon Franz on tonight's show with our institute guest, James Bader Siegel. And, uh, wow, all right, we're done. You guys can go home now. I'm going to stick around. Nothing? Crickets? This is okay. what I get? This is what I get? I get this. Where Where's my crickets here? <laughs> Got three survivors in the crowd. I get crickets. It's Monday night. It is Monday night. It's rough. It's just getting the week started. And it's raining outside. It started raining again? Yep. All right, that's epic suck. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. Well, let's set up our, our closing sequence here. Um, and uh, here we go. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, Internet. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's tonight's show. 227. 227 shows, wow. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank my guest, Jane Fettersiegel. Angela Wicker-Ramos, Sharon Franz, and in city here, Matt Beckett and Brooke Lorenz. Next week, Monday, live at 8, documentary filmmakers in the spotlight. Joy Huber, young adult survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. What's her other lymphoma? I don't know. Must be a trend. Author of Cancer with Joy. And uh, filmmaker, Emmanuel Schick Garcia, calling in from France. Director of The Idiot Cycle, producer of JPS Films, and two brothers, Anthony and Nicholas Bizignano, actor, writer, producers of the film Transition, about uh, lacrosse and cancer in young adults. Amazing. If you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at iTunes.stupidcancer.com or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com anytime. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Lisa Bernhard, Kenny Kane, myself, and the whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday. And here we go.